Welcome to Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, the queer James Bond podcast. I'm Andrew Wheeler. And I'm Shane Holland. For this episode, we're doing our second deep dive into Ian Fleming's novels. And as we're tackling the books in publication order, that means we're covering book number two, Live and Let Die. If you're new to the podcast, you can check out our discussion of the movie Live and Let Die just a couple of episodes back. It is a problematic movie, and in that sense, it is a faithful adaptation because it's also a problematic book. Ugh. Again, <laughs> tell me about it. <laughs> Before we dig into the specifics, and we will, Shane, have you been up to anything very Bondy this week? Uh, well, um, after finishing this novel, I I just needed to get a bit more sense of history on who Ian Fleming was. Uh, was he beaten by black people uh, as a young child mercilessly and every day? Uh, because he seems to have a grudge. Uh, I did not find that, but, you know, I did learn a bit more about the man, and uh, I did it through his own words first. I watched um, a very old CBC interview, uh, Ian Fleming, The Brains Behind Bond, uh, and uh, we'll include a link on our Twitter and Instagram so you can watch along. Uh, and that was pretty interesting, learning about uh, how he viewed Bond and his inspiration in his own words. Um, but what I really dug, and I think <laughs> I'm like 12 years late to the game, was Joanna Lumley's Ian Fleming, where Bond began. Uh, I, I found it on YouTube. I'm sure uh, you can find it. It was it originally aired on BBC Three, I think. Uh, and it is Joanna Lumley looking back at the life of Ian Fleming. Uh, she goes to Jamaica, to Goldeneye, uh, and talks about uh, his inspiration there and uh, his life, his uh, growing up in Eton and becoming a journalist and uh, going to war uh, and how kind of his privileged upbringing was washed away uh, by the deeds he did in World War II, which definitely indeed saved tons of lives. He he actually is a legitimate war hero mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, a real originator of spycraft as we know it. Um, and a lot of that has to had to do with kind of his creative, fantastical ideas uh, of solutions to problems. Particularly, he's credited with, you know, finding the Enigma machine or, or recovering the Enigma machine in a daring uh, heist of a submarine, essentially. Um, wow. Yeah, uh, pretty interesting stuff. So, yeah, we'll include links to both of these. You can watch and uh, hopefully you enjoy it as much as I. Maybe we should actually do the Joanna, Joanna Lumley one together. I know we both love her. I think uh, if you haven't yeah. seen it, you'd really love it. Yeah, that might be an idea for a future episode. Uh, so, yeah. What about you, Andrew? What's the Bondiest thing you've done this week? Well, um, <laughs> it does get tricky thinking of Bondy things when we're still in lockdown here in Ontario. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Acknowledging that up front, that it might be a while before we get to go on any real adventures with this any podcast. Any adventures, really. Any, yeah. Um so, but I was thinking that I've been, uh, I, I don't talk much about my own writing on this podcast, but it is inherently quite bondy in places. So anyone who follows my Patreon at patreon.com slash Wheeler will know that I serialize a story there called Valentin and the Widow, which is uh, a globe trotting adventure fiction, uh, story. It is about a, a 1920s aristocrat who is trying to undo her husband's evil schemes, her late husband's evil schemes, and hires a gay Russian valet to uh, be her bodyguard. So it's very inspired by James Bond, but the politics are rather different. Or at least I hope they are. <laughs> I'm sh- um, I, I know they are. <laughs> <laughs> 
it is, uh, you know, it is colonial fiction, but it takes a different view on what colonial should be. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it's been a great thing to do. I used to do it as a podcast and now I do it serialized on Patreon. So as you listen to this podcast, they should be, I think, just starting the, uh, the Russia set story, uh, which also feels quite bondy. So yeah, if you enjoy, uh, if you enjoy supporting, the uh, people who make this podcast uh please go to patreon.com slash wheeler it is just three dollars a month to read my serialized adventure fiction and i think if you like bond you would enjoy it such great stuff also i i want to give you a shout out uh you posted on your uh, personal twitter um a short four panel comic uh which mm-hmm. was just lovely like i legitimately cried at the end of it it was Aww. really precious i well, thank you uh, yeah, so just go to Andrew's Twitter, at, at Wheeler, right? Yes, that's right. I've, I've been on Twitter a long time. I have one of the good names. <laughs> <laughs> you really do. All right, it's time for our regular cocktail segment. Shane, what are you sipping on this episode? Well, I will tell you, this novel really, really wanted me to drink scotch and soda. So much so that it's mentioned <laughs> every five chapters, I feel like. Um, but I decided I would go with a much more thematic choice for this novel. Uh, I decided on the old fashioned. Uh, it is basically the first recorded definition of the cocktail. It is any spirit with sugar, water, and bitters. That is the definition of a cocktail, and that is essentially what the old-fashioned is. According to the Ultimate Bar Book by Mitty Helmich, uh, this now-famous version of the recipe was allegedly created at the Pendennis Club of Louisville, Kentucky, for a local distiller, Colonel James E. Pepper. That's right, Colonel Pepper. The (laughs) old-fashioned class was designed to actually accommodate the muddling of sugar, bitters, and fruit. So, I mean, this is... This is the originator. This is the cocktail, one of the cocktails, you know. Uh, it is listed as one of uh, six uh, on the International Bar Association list of, like, main cocktails, essentially. So, how do you make it? You take a sugar cube. You add three dashes of Angostura bitters. I like to add a couple dashes of orange bitters as well. Uh, and you give it a couple drops of water, up to, like, a teaspoon or two, uh, to make the sugar cube soft enough that you can muddle it. Uh, I also added a strip of lemon zest and a slice of blood orange as I was muddling to kind of release those flavors into the two and a half ounces of bourbon. I chose Blanton Special Reserve because I was very lucky and able to get a bottle before it was completely sold out within, uh, you know, the same day. Uh, and, yeah, uh, and it's pretty good, actually. Uh, it is... A much drier bourbon. Uh, it's a bit hotter as well. It's a bit spicier. The alcohol is a bit stronger. Uh, it has kind of like a woody, earthy quality that you don't often see in bourbon, but I think is really pleasant. A lot of people say that uh, they don't enjoy this one, that it's not at all what they expect. But I think it's different, and it's not just your typical butterscotch, caramel, vanilla bourbon. And it's a pretty tasty drink. It is sweet, it is spicy, it is herbal, it is citrusy. Uh, it really hits everything. Uh, and I can understand why, you know, the cocktail has become so popular. This is, like, basically what it is. Do you think Colonel James E. Pepper is in relationship to, to Sheriff J.W. Pepper? I could not imagine a scenario where that <laughs> isn't the case. Fleming does like to borrow, he does like to borrow names. So. Oh, absolutely. He like pretty much you pass a liquor store and he sees a name and uh yeah, that that'll be <laughs> the name of a character in the next book. 
It was as he turned to swim towards the twin propellers on his way to the shelter of the rocks that he suddenly saw the terrible things that had been going on behind him. The great pack of barracudas seemed to have gone mad. They were whirling and snapping in the water like hysterical dogs. Three sharks that had joined them were charging through the water with a clumsier frenzy. The water was boiling with the dreadful fish, and Bond was slammed in the face and buffeted again and again within a few yards. At any moment he knew his rubber skin would be torn with the flesh below it, and then the pack would be on him. So speaking of Joanna Lumley, that was in fact the great Joanna Lumley reading an excerpt from the abridged audiobook version of Live and Let Die, written by Ian Fleming and first published in April 1954 by Jonathan Cape just one year after Dr. No. The novel makes quite a few changes from the movie, which we discussed a couple of episodes back, but it retains broadly the same shape, um, and one thing it certainly shares in common with the movie is that it is grotesquely and abundantly racist. So uh, we will have a lot to talk about, unfortunately. Let's start at the very top. James Bond arrives in New York on assignment, receiving a warm welcome from the CIA. He is reunited with Felix Leiter. And I must say, uh, I am pretty much over this novel by page two. <laughs> they, uh, Ian Fleming immediately starts othering black Americans uh, with references to Negroes being afraid of witch doctors and shadows. Uh, and I, I don't even want to use the word he uses for black women. Um, but he, but Bond has a, a black female chauffeur uh, and... Uh, it is important to note in the novel that it is unusual because black women apparently don't drive in America, which I just cannot believe. Uh, it, it's really hard just to get through this first chapter, and it is a taste of things to come. Women, though, we're told do drive otherwise. Like, I mean, by women, he means white women do drive, and they drive their miserable husbands around, it seems. It was a very strange... I don't know, I think it's his idea of feminism is to sort of present this idea of women drivers as sort of women women are allowed to drive in america but their their husbands don't enjoy it or something I don't yeah know. yeah i don't i i guess <laughs> so there's a lot of we'll get there i guess but i think fleming is trying to say hey bond is actually more progressive than most of his counterparts and most of his peers <laughs> uh and he does it by saying the most racist shit it's so crazy i this whole novel is gaslighting us um <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay but i look we're gonna talk a lot about the racism in this novel in a bit more detail uh but there's a couple things uh that stand out that i really do actually enjoy uh in the beginning um i kind of love bond's witty view about america America, uh, particularly how he notes the road signs and that they're particularly feminine, uh, soft shoulders, sharp curves, squeeze ahead, and in my opinion, the best one, slippery when wet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was fascinated by this framing of America because this is very much a sort of Eurocentric um, and even Anglocentric idea of America as this glamorous modern place. Mm -hmm. um, America as something exotic and decadent and and even scandalous, um, scandalous for its equality, which again he thinks <laughs> is in evidence. But oh, uh, <laughs> you know, it, he has a very skewed idea. But at the same time, he also like his vision of America as glamorous and modern is the same idea of America that I grew up with in the UK. Like that hadn't changed in thirty, forty. 50 years mm -hmm. america still represents something glamorous to to 
uh, the English reader, the English writer. I think to a lot of the world. I mean, it is the land of excess. It is the land of the American dream. You can, you can, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere for New York, at least. And yeah. Well, just the fact that the first book, you know, Casino Royale opens in a casino, giving you like the, the smells and the sights of the casino and immediately submerges you in this glamorous world. And this one opens in an airport and it's like, that doesn't seem glamorous at all. But actually back then, an airport in New York is glamorous. <laughs> like, yeah, absolutely. Air travel is glamorous. It's the height of glamour. World hopping and experiencing foods uh, from far out places. I, I mean, I guess we have to remember that England was still recovering from like it's uh, from the depression and uh, having no money after the war, and literally it had been bombed flat, and so there's still a lot of reconstruction going on. And America uh, escaped the war relatively untouched, uh, and it has just boomed in those years because of its war machine. Uh, so. America must have felt like so modern and so full of exciting possibilities and things you'd never done yeah. or eaten or seen. Uh, you can see the fascination. And that is the romanticism of, of this novel. Um, but it's also one that didn't appeal to American readers because this book did not sell well in America. American figure. Like, I don't care about this. <laughs> send, send him, <laughs> send him somewhere exciting. <laughs> Uh, I also, I, wow, I can't believe we're still on the first chapter. Uh, but Bond <laughs> also mentions, uh, that he feels like far out of touch with the ground in New York City and this strange feeling of loneliness and empty space. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and yeah, he others himself. He, he is definitely not a part of this landscape and it feels strange and alien. And, uh, it's the beginning of a, an entire novel where he is terrorized throughout the entire thing. Yeah, we get a sense of that as well in when he describes New York as, as an atomic bomb target, which is both placing it in a sort of geopolitical context, but also creating that just idea of overriding danger. Um, but also modernity, you know, that all of these things are tied into that, that, uh, very specific reference. In flashback, we learn that M has sent Bond to investigate the sale of antique gold coins believed to be from the treasure hoard of the pirate Bloody Morgan. Yeah, this was unexpected to me that the <laughs> the plot right? of the second James Bond novel hinges on pirate treasure. <laughs> this, I mean, this is a pulp thriller, and I mean, I guess we know that like James Bond is the epitome of pulp action, yeah. but it is just so strange to think <laughs> that this could have been sold on like a shopper's drug mart shelf for <laughs> two pennies, and uh, yeah, it's. <laughs> It's a pirate. It's a book about pirate treasure um, that yeah. spends about three quarters of it talking about race. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the book could have been called like the Ducats of Bloody Morgan or something. Like, that would have been an accurate title. So. Do you think it would have been a better novel if maybe they had spent more time on this part of the <laughs> tale? Like they kind of forget about the Bloody Morgan thing right up until the last seven chapters. Yeah, I mean, there is certainly like there is a version of this this story where they are like chasing down treasure like that that would be quite fun but i think it would mean giving all of the different factions of the story more agency than he was willing to give them maybe yeah absolutely <laughs> in the flashback m suspects that the gold coins are being fenced by a haitian born harlem gangster known as mr big who is also a voodoo cult leader and also an agent of the <laughs> soviet anti-spy organization smash he's got a lot going on this mr big yeah he's very involved um <laughs> There is kind of a reverence and respect that Bond and M both have, and they both kind of admit uh, to it as well that um, black people, particularly black Americans, are becoming upwardly mobile. 
<clears throat> they mention that they've seen, you know, great black baseball players and great black artists and great black musicians. It was only a matter of time before the world got its first great black criminal, which, yes. I mean, A, it's so reductive. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and you can see this kernel of progressiveness for 1954, but it's totally ruined in the way they say it. Yeah, they're saying, oh yes, black people can do almost anything, and their example for this is being a gangster. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's not great, guys. <laughs> no, this is not how you do it. <laughs> um, but it is an idea that we also see Big return to much, much later in the novel, so mm -hmm. we will touch on it again. And I will also mention the fact that they they seem to put a, lean a little heavily on the idea that, that Big is mixed race. Um, uh, and yes. I, I do wonder if they're using that to sort of have it both ways. Like, look at these great black criminal, but he's also like, he's white on his mother's side, I think, or something. Fleming does this also with solitaire and mm -hmm. with quarrel in this novel. Mm -hmm. uh, all of, none of the main characters can be purely black. I, it feels like it, it goes back to eugenics. Okay. Uh, the more black you are, the more close to evil you are, the mo more less deserving of praise or uh, equ equality you are. Uh, and so all of the like big has to be mixed race or else uh, M and Bond wouldn't respect him. Solitaire right. has to be a white Caribbean woman. Otherwise, Bond wouldn't be able to fall in love with her. Quarrel has to have traditional um, Anglo-Saxon or Roman features for him to be considered Bond's uh, greatest ally in this novel. It right. all comes down to uh, uh, having a level of whiteness in order to pass in this society. Speaking of heinous racism, um, <laughs> we also learn that Big, his real name is Buonaparte Ignaz Gallia, uh, and he uses voodoo superstition to instill fear in people. Uh, Big claims to be a zombie of the fearsome spirit, Baron Samadhi. Ugh, absurd white supremacist bullshit is what it <laughs> is. Look, voodoo uh, is a Haitian uh, culture that stemmed you know, through slavery, uh, mix through the the effects of slavery mixing with uh, Catholic culture and just um, you know Christ Christianity in general, uh, and it spread to other places. Uh, for Big to be an African American who is also a voodoo leader, it's just it's just so wild. There's no connect. <laughs> they don't ever say like he came from Haiti, right? He's just a, an American. No, I think he is Haitian. Oh, um, I missed that. I but it's, I, but I, it's, I didn't read this thoroughly. <laughs> <laughs> I think it literally mentioned one time. Um, but but yeah, that's and that's the sole justification is that he is Haitian, but like no one else is, and yet voodoo is rife in Black American culture in this in this book and in the movie adaptation. Yeah, exactly what I was thinking. Just the same as in the movie. Any Black person sees the Baron Samedi effigy, and they immediately lose their shit. It's just so crazy. <laughs> yeah. Um, I do think like a few of the things that are different in the novel and the movie. One is that Baron Samadhi is not a separate character in the novel. And I actually think it, you know, it works better for Baron Samadhi to be a sidekick, a henchman, um, a, like a spooky figure. Cause he just exists in this as, as a, um, fetish, as a, as a totem yes. that it sits in Mr. Big's office. 
The zombie idea is incredibly gross. Um, one of the things we learn is that Big has this sort of grayish pallor and giant head. And these are supposed to, I think, be the features that make him look zombie-ish. We're told that he's the leader of the Black Widow voodoo cult, but I feel like that doesn't even get mentioned again. Like, that's a really good name for a, <laughs> a, a an organization. Like, that's that sounds cooler than Smirsh. Absolutely. That, that could have been the crux. Like, there are so many different stories happening in yeah. this book. If he had just chosen one, it might have been more successful. <laughs> you know, the, the movie does actually, you know, and is problematic because of it, make much more use of voodoo than the novel does. And you can totally see where it was uh, tempting to do that. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know, maybe there's a world in which it could have been done with sensitivity and intelligence. Um, Possibly. The book, the book does not really use it at all apart from like as as like a motif running through but otherwise it's really not much of a feature in the book and of course it's just horribly overused in the movie oh yeah uh one of the things i did like uh was i like that big is also an outcast that yeah he doesn't fit in in his own community and so he creates uh this vast network where nothing gets past him uh that's uh, that's actually pretty cool for a major villain uh it works it it works then it works now it, yeah if it weren't uh shrouded in all of this racism it would be about a lot more effective yeah his his uh bond villain um physical uh defect i suppose is apart from his his gray pallor is that he is physically massive um and he's known as big boy as a child which is you know a demeaning nickname that he clearly reclaims and of course big is also his initials um <laughs> just so, coincidentally yeah yes he's 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 big in three different ways <laughs> so the cia briefs and equips bond bond is immediately the target of an assassination attempt when a bomb is sent to his room uh which i thought was like legitimately thrilling even like even just reading the ticking clock uh makes you feel it got my heart racing yeah it's a nice scene um it's I like that there's this sort of back and forth where he's like, it's a bomb. No, it's probably not a bomb. It's probably a clock. Wait, why would someone send me a clock? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's, a, it's a nice little, uh, yeah, that, that sort of amps the tension. It does seem weird that, for, for one thing, as soon as this scene is over, I kind of forgot about it. And like, I can't even remember if they justify who sent him. I mean, obviously Big sent him the bomb, but how did he know (laughs) yeah another thing that was done much more effectively uh in the film actually was kind of this uh setting up the world of that there are spies all around him right from the moment he lands he is in their crosshairs um, yeah which yeah you don't really get that sense in this parcel bomb it's just it's it it's all of a sudden there it's all of a sudden something he has to deal with um which really works towards the feeling of terror and dread that starts pretty early in this novel and the other yes. thing is, I, I wonder if, uh, like, at what point did the bomb appear in this book versus the bomb appearing in Casino Royale? Like, the, the oh. Bulgarian scene oh in Casino <laughs> Like, they seem to occur pretty much at the same point in the story. It's like, in Fleming's like, well, I'm 40 pages in, I'd better have someone try and blow James Bond up. <laughs> and then we will never talk about it again. I mean, he's already found a formula. <laughs> it's, and this is only his second outing. Wow. Uh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Something I'm going to keep looking out for is the the page forty bomb. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have to ask. Uh, when 
Bond was told by Leiter to avoid at all costs <laughs> the word actually. Actually. Uh, actually. Uh, did it bother you that Leiter was like also saying, you know, directly you see this instance happening. Who says directly but an English person the way that they <laughs> say it in this novel? I, it's directly being, uh, uh, I guess, uh, synonymous with as soon as. Yes. There's something about James Bond not wanting to be one of the posh boys, like the, 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 his attitude to tea, uh, his attitude, the fact that he says, I never say that word. I don't think he even <laughs> repeats the word. I think he just no. says, I don't say it. Um, and yes, you know, we've said this book is racist. Well, it's racist against the English as well. Um, <laughs> it's not. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> Thank God. But, <laughs> but they are trying to shame the, the way that English people say actually, um, which, okay. Yes. is a little grating. I will grant you. Um, but yes, there's something kind of femme shaming about it as well. Like it's mm-hmm. the, it's poshness and, and, uh, effeminacy are tied together in English culture. And Bond, of course, will have no part in it. Uh, the rich irony that, like, Fleming is an Etonian, uh, who is, like, trying to shrug off the mantle of, I guess, that image of himself, um, and actually just falling so hard into it uh, when we look back at it. So so weird. I'm interested by all the touristy crap that James Bond seems to pick up at this point <laughs> in the, the novel. Uh, he's got like an American flag and a <laughs> statue of the Empire State Building. Uh. <laughs> it's, it's pretty much that, yeah. A tie clip in the shape of a whip, an alligator skin billfold, a Zippo lighter, uh, a travel pack, some horn-rimmed glasses. It's like... What are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) I guess this was a disguise. (laughs) I Heart NY t-shirt was going to be in there next. (laughs) Oh, I wish. (laughs) Yeah, that is his cover story. He's tacky. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, yes, he certainly is. Uh, The other thing we get in the CIA briefing is that Phoenix Leiter assures James Bond that Americans sleep naked and that he should therefore sleep in the raw uh, in order to (laughs) maintain his cover. Who is this advice for, Felix? Uh, I mean, it's absolutely for Felix. We will get into their relationship a little bit uh, later. Oh, yes. Uh, (laughs) Bond receives orders to investigate Biggs' activities in Florida and Jamaica. But first, he and Leiter visit a Harlem club and watch a strip routine. All right. Let's get into this. Let's talk about it. Chapter five uh, is the worst chapter of a novel, of of a... pop fiction novel ever written potentially <laughs> i mean i won't even say the title of the chapter because it is so offensive mm-hmm. um but everything contained therein the fake patois uh, an angry young black couple uh where uh the man threatens to beat the woman and she is so submissive that she likes it the objectification and the othering of the dancer in the chapter that follows and the different but equally gross ways that Bond reacts and the black audience reacts to her. It's all just so upsetting. And the, the, the dancer is dancing to more like Haitian drumming. Like, can you imagine going to a strip club and an act comes out and a drummer comes out and all you hear is a drum? Give me some music. I don't need just right? a beat. Like, I think in Harlem, the strippers are not dancing to voodoo drumming. I don't I think hope that's not. 
I don't think that's accurate. It's incredibly offensive. I want to apologize to our black audience. If you read this far into the chapter, you do not have had to have finished the book. We are going to discuss it in length, and uh, you don't need to worry. We will tell you everything that happened. Yeah, the apparently the title of this, this chapter in the US edition was Seventh Avenue. So they knew that it was not okay to call the book this. I was reading on Wikipedia and someone was saying it's a reference to a, the title of another book that is an anti-racist book, and that in turn is named after balconies in segregated churches. None of this excuses choosing to use that word and title a chapter of the book with that word. No, absolutely not. This is the part where it made it hard for me to finish the novel. I actually had a really time, really hard time doing that this time around. I know we're only <laughs> on to the second book. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, as a mixed black Canadian settler uh, who has seen racism firsthand directed at me, directed at my dad, directed at people I know, directed at people I don't know, mm-hmm. it is... To, to like be forced to uh, relive those traumatic experiences simply by seeing a word and by being so casually flung about, it's it's really upsetting. So this book took me a long time to finish. I literally stayed up until one o'clock last night cramming through the rest of it. Thank God the last quarter of the book is readable. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this is where things started to break down for me. Well, I would say the first quarter is actually the the worst part maybe just because of like the density mm-hmm. of horrible things in it like if you can get through the first quarter you have seen maybe the worst of it yeah that's not to say there aren't horrifying things in the rest of the book <laughs> unfortunately there are but no but you're but there are there are some nuggets of goodness uh like like in all of james bond really like it's not all yeah. perfect it it's all about a colonialist who is working to make the world better for just white English people. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's not going to be a progressive bastion. It is not going to make us feel good. Uh, but it is, I get like, this is what people thought back then. This is how Fleming's mind worked, at least. And, you know, this is, these are some of the best selling books of their time. So, People ate it up. They believed it. They loved it. They didn't see the problem with it. We don't even really touch on it. I I didn't include it in the recap, but Bond does meet with local New York police uh, to talk about Mr. Big uh, in this chapter. And that conversation is horrific as well. I mean, Officer Dexter, even to them, sounds like an asshole. Uh, (laughs) But then again, all cops are bastards. So uh, that's not surprising. Yeah, the fact that that white New York cops are racists is not is not a, a something that Ian Fleming is breaking. <laughs> we do meet some of the henchmen uh, around here. We meet mm-hmm. Teehee and Whisper in this section of the book. They are nothing like as flamboyant or interesting as they are in the movie, and they are dispatched almost as quickly. As we meet them. <laughs> yes, they do not hang around, and they are part of a a posse that includes people called McThing, Blabbermouth Foley, <laughs> Sam Miami, and The Flannel. Oh, uh, so I'm good. most intrigued by The Flannel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's actually just a, uh, a lesbian. Um, she... <laughs> She has one dress, uh, piece, one piece of item that she likes to wear over and over. Uh. I, I believe that. Uh, yeah, Fleming, I mean, it's not just black mobsters. He does also give ridiculous names to white mobsters yes. uh, in Diamonds of Forever and in Goldfinger. So, yeah, it's a, it's a motif for Fleming. He just loves to name mobsters. Um, I've been watching uh, the series Search Party. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's available here in Canada on Crave. And I think it comes through HBO Max. Um 
And one of the wonderful things about that show is that everyone has a crazy name, like Chantel Witherbottom, uh, <laughs> Purse Strings, uh, Dust Feather. Everyone has just this crazy, nonsensical last <laughs> name. And, but it's all supposed to be taken with the utmost seriousness. And yeah. I feel like that's kind of what's happening here. We're just supposed to accept that McThing and Blabbermouth Foley exist in the world. Uh, have you got to Chipwreck yet? Oh, Chipwreck is one of my favorite <laughs> jokes. <laughs> I love, I die. No one draws attention to it. <laughs> no, not one person says, uh, no one cracks a smile. It's so good. <laughs> go watch, after you've finished reading this novel or thrown it into the trash bin, <laughs> go watch Search Party. Do yourself a favor. Uh, so, Bond and Lighter are captured by, I don't know, Blabbermouth Foley and the Flannel, maybe. Um, <laughs> and Bond is inter- interrogated by Mr. Big, who uses a psychic named Solitaire to test the truth of Bond's story about why he's in New York. Solitaire claims that Bond's cover story is true. She lies to protect him. First of all, I guess I want to say I am so glad that the Kananga device is not used in the novel, mm-hmm. um, that Mr. Big is just Mr. Big. Sure, there's the Baron Samdy thing, but there's none of that stupid, is, who is this? Why are there two evil uh, people? It, it just yeah. confused the movie. Uh, I really like the desk gun that Big has. It's kind of a nifty device, and it's sufficiently threatening the way Bond describes it. It was a large keyhole. In fact, Bond estimated 0.45 of an inch in diameter, which is just so cold, and like <laughs> he knows exactly what it is. It's... yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, and he, we also get another instance of Bond being bound to a chair. We're gonna have to keep a track of, of uh, Ian Fleming's uh, bound Bond fetish. <laughs> Bondage? Oh, no, no, that's too easy. <laughs> um, and speaking of recurring motifs, this is another Bond woman in solitaire who doesn't wear a lot of makeup and is not terribly vain. Um, you know, she tends to wear a little lipstick and her... Nails are unvarnished. By contrast, Big is called out for being very vain while also mm-hmm. being described as monstrous and ghastly, and he's infantilized. He's referred to as puerile. <laughs> um, there's not much love for, for Mr. Big in this scene. No. Um, and yes, the fact that vanity is deceitful in a man and, and lack of vanity is prized in a woman, like these <laughs> seem to be recurring motifs for Fleming. Oh yeah, that's, uh, that's hetero culture right there. <laughs> Um, also of great importance to Fleming, uh, he needed to tell us that Solitaire has the pallor of white families that have lived long in the tropics and <laughs> the face of a daughter of a French colonial slave owner. What, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? What does that look like? I was hoping you would have an answer because, like, I was trying to picture it. I was like, uh, Napoleon? She had, like, she doesn't sound attractive. She sounds like Ted Cruz or something. Right? Like, I mean, was it just like he really had to get the fact that she's descended from slave owners in there somehow? Like, oh, what? yeah. It's brutal. Um, <laughs> just an, just another way to, you know, put these pip- people in a cased system. Yeah. Uh, Big's henchman, Teehee, breaks Bond's finger. But Big decides to let Bond go. There's too many bees in this damned <laughs> novel. Bond kills several of Big's men and escapes to avoid further harm. I, I, I guess I buy Big's justification that he doesn't kill Bond because he doesn't want more heat to come down on him. Mm-hmm. Bond um, kind of scares him into believing that, you know, the, 
England knows I'm here and the CIA knows I'm here. And if I disappear and if Lighter disappears, there's going to be a lot of questions and a lot of eyes on you, which, you know, it works. It makes sense. It's a good reason to let the guy go, but rough him up. And I've got to say that pinky breaking, reading that paragraph every time makes me nauseous. It sounds mm-hmm. disgusting. The slow yeah. lift and just watching and hearing the crack. Oh, yeah, it's really horrible. Um, and it, and the way it plays out in the rest of this novel is crazy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Fleming does, you know, we're used to, to action movies where people get injured and, and then it's sort of just forgotten. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and Not here. in Bond, he never really, like, sometimes he'll sustain, like, he has the bad arm in, one of the the Brosnan in the movies. world is not enough. Yeah, right. Yeah, um, but generally speaking, he's like Teflon. But Fleming is good at remembering what he's done. Like the fact that this book begins with us sort of being told about the um, the repairs on his scar that was left on him. Uh, yes, the, the grafting Royale. of skin onto the back of his hand, which sounds yeah. particularly painful, and that he has a a giant lump in his shoulder where they took the skin. And like every Bond novel so far has ended with him sort of bedridden, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then the next novel sort of starts with well he just about recuperated yeah. from the events of the last novel good enough pat on the back oh not that spot please that's where the barracuda got me yeah. <laughs> spoilers oh yeah sorry <laughs> i mean if you're reading this book along with this podcast that's that's insane it's gonna take you at least six more hours <laughs> but this episode is going to be an eight hour long episode right <laughs> I, I i okay yeah i i'm not gonna go on there's just constant othering of black people it's dehumanizing it's never never like he's pointing and saying, um, that person over there moved towards Bonds especially. It's always the Negro this or the yeah. woolly headed that. And it's it's gross. It's everywhere. It's hard. Uh, and at a point, it's just hard to ignore. And it takes me out immediately of whatever's happening. So even as awesome as that pinky breaking was, the section right after is like, oh, my God, we're back into this bullshit. I will admit my technique for reading these these books for this podcast has been to listen to the audiobook first and mm. then read the book second. Um and that proves very useful when I want to skim things in the read through. Like the all the stuff written in patois in dialect, I just skip it when I'm reading the book because I've already heard it. That's so smart. <laughs> I was just thinking about it before I started uh or before we started recording. I was like, I really should just be listening to the audiobooks at this point because I have yeah. read these novels already. It would be a lot easier <laughs> maybe i'm gonna do that although uh i don't know the next one we'll we'll talk about it uh <laughs> it's easier for note-taking to to like read that's why i do like i do the audiobook pass and that familiarizes me with the book and then for the note-taking pass i read the book and that's easier wow we are really pulling back the curtain <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we did get the first of the two soliloquies here from Mr. Big, uh, where he's talking about himself as an artist among criminals, mm-hmm. his high standards in his craft of crime. There is the, the germ of an idea here of, of like a great villain. Um, it's really not explored sufficiently. Like all we really get of it is that we revisit the same speech sort of beat for beat at the end of the book. Yeah. And you're right. Like, it's there if if he'd really leaned into big being this um i don't know giant personality who was kind of really well con- like shown how well connected and how well known he was we never see see a scene where big is out and about and people are like you know in reverence of him or like defer to him or uh, capitulate yeah. to him we just see big kind of overseeing and not 
overseeing this giant operation and not really saying much other than believing in himself, which, sure, that's great. Tell us that you believe in yourself, <laughs> but show us on the page why you believe in yourself. Yeah. Back at the hotel, Bond learns that Lighter was released with little harm because he bonded with his captor over their shared love of jazz. Oh, this is Lighter's way of saying, <laughs> I have black friends, I can't be racist. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at least he appreciates something of black culture. It's the mm-hmm. only time that it's given a positive uh, spin in this entire book. So <laughs> that, That's so true. I will not diminish that one little tiny point. Um, although I will say that he's like immediately disdainful of, at that point, the new jazz which is you know <laughs> the far superior jazz i might right. say um who does he call out specifically i'm gonna have to look it up oh yeah so <laughs> in chapter nine uh true or false lighter uh says uh we got on to duke ellington and agreed that we liked our band leaders to be percussion men not wind <laughs> we agreed the piano or the drums held the band together better than any other solo instrument jelly roll morton for instance Apropos the Duke, I told him the crack about the clarinet, an ill woodwind that nobody blows good, which is, you know, a great dick joke. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But also Duke Ellington is amazing. He's a visionary. He's one of the best jazz musicians that ever lived. And and Leiter's like, meh, he's not for me. That's true. And, you know, Satchmo himself goes on to record a Bond song. So put some respect on these people. (laughs) Come on, man. (laughs) Uh, we do get some great spy stuff, uh, in this area. Um, you, we see Bond imagining what he knows to be the chatter of connecting cables, and we get to hear him, sp- uh, speaking in code to M. Uh, how sick? Oh, sick as can be, sir. There's a flu going about. I've got a slight chill, but nothing to worry about. Talking about his broken pinky. I love that kind of stuff. I also enjoy the the phone call that he makes to M to report everything that's happened to him, in which he refers to Felix as Felicia. <laughs> yes, which <laughs> gives okay, Felix like, a little drag name and uh, and refers to him as his secretary. And okay, this is part of the cover, but also like <laughs> there's something there. <laughs> this is okay. Felix Leiter is absolutely Doll's first Bond girl, um, because he gets taken out midway through the book, uh, right. and then. Uh, and the last two are kind of interchangeable, but we have Solitaire and Quarrel. Uh, Solitaire <laughs> stays with him to the end, but Quarrel ki- ki- kind of comes in in the third act and disappears and also fills the role of a love interest in a lot of ways, including like yeah. giving Bond daily massages. So I don't know. <laughs> Bond seems to have two male relationships and one female relationship in this novel. That's all I'm saying. You can infer what we're saying. We are the <laughs> queer James Bond podcast. Yes, this is our job. (laughs) Solitaire calls Bond and asks for his help getting away. Bond is suspicious, but tells her to meet him aboard the train to Florida. Look, I'm not a secret agent. (laughs) This is a terrible idea. So someone in the enemy camp calls you and says, I'm just trying to escape. Please save me. And you're like, yeah, okay. here's where I'm going to be at this time in the morning. Uh, Don't tell your boss and uh, we'll see what happens. I mean, she's a pretty virginal 25-year-old, so obviously... What, what could she be hiding? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, of course, it works out that she's hiding nothing, but except some more racism. <laughs> she's not hiding that well. No. Um, <laughs> I guess we're supposed to think that because she saved his life, that sort of brought him some trust in her. But yeah, it's it's not very good uh, covering up his tracks at this point. No. Um, do we ever hear, like, her real name is established as Simone Luttrell. Is that in the movie? I feel like it isn't. 
it definitely is not in the movie. I feel like we would have remembered that. It's such a yeah. it's such a unique name. And I mean, we're currently watching Simone Slay on this season of Drag Race. Surely that would have stood out to us at the time. <laughs> That's true. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> on the train, Bond and Solitaire get to know each other better. They switch trains before reaching their destination and later learn that their carriage was shot up by men with Tommy guns. Solitaire is spotted by one of Big's men in such a dumb blunder. Literally the <laughs> only time she shows her face in that entire passage of what spans like three, four chapters. And yeah, yeah literally they step out of the shadows for a second and she's like, oh, I just need to take off this veil. It's way too hot. <laughs> Um, also, we, we learned that Bond smokes three packs a day. Jesus <laughs> Christ. <laughs> I mean, that's that wasn't that unusual <laughs> back in the day. Oh, my God. They must have smelled like, oh, it, I used to smoke. I, I'm not smoking currently. <laughs> I can't imagine what I smelled like, and I thought it smelled pretty bad. Smoking three packs a day must have just been standing beside a chimney for 24 hours a day. I mean, you could smoke in the office in those days. You know? Oh, God, everything must have reeked and looked brown and just a film of tar on the walls. Now, Solitaire becomes very subservient and deferential as soon as she's in Bond's company, which he clearly finds very attractive. She has total faith in him, which seems to be something that's justified by her powers slash her instincts. You know, she's characterized as someone who sees Bond as as a as someone she can fall in love with and someone she can escape with. Um, and that would normally be weird, but I think the fact that she's psychic is what sort of justifies it. But it's also sort of... <laughs> standard operating procedure for a bond girl in the books i think yeah but it feels like they've spent all of five minutes together when she's like yeah. okay i'm in love with you and you will be in love with me <laughs> <laughs> um we bond is essentially saved by uh the car attendant bald yeah. his name is baldwin his speech is so unreadable that it's not just <laughs> offensive it is almost laughable uh, I'm just going to skip ahead a little bit, but his death is treated as a joke. This character yeah. literally saves Bond and Solitaire's lives by getting them off the train in time. And they're like, oh, the idiot. They found him crouched down in the corridor. Yes, he's. He, I've written in the notes that he was a good man and a terrible caricature. <laughs> those oh, are, yeah. Those are the two <laughs> takeaways of poor Baldwin. Uh, Solitaire also casually drops the N-bomb uh, on at one point mm -hmm. on the train ride, just really revealing who she is. She also has terrible things to say about America and florida <laughs> she, she's not wrong about florida though i mean no. everything she says there seems fairly you know talking about the the fact that it's basically a graveyard still as true today as it yeah. was then <laughs> uh, but she does have other things to say that are not forgivable her speech about sending black men to their death uh i know we're going to touch on this later but I think it's worth highlighting here where it occurs in the book. Um, she is basically a monster. Um, yeah. And it is really not addressed. Uh, she knew that her verdict might be a death sentence, but she felt indifferent to the fate of those she judged to be evil. Very few of them were white, is the line that she says in her mind. Yeah. It's horrifying. It's disgusting. This is another case where the female heroine is kind of given the dominant role. She brought his lips against hers and kissed him long and lasciviously as if she was the man and he the woman. The what a weird thing to write. 
What a weird... Bon- uh, Fleming is obsessed with masculine women, um, both, uh, <laughs> like, as figures uh, of authority and figures of lust. Yeah. I don't know. Once again, this is the Queer James Bond podcast. You can read into <laughs> it what you want, but I'm saying I think Fleming had some things hidden in his closet. You know what I mean? <laughs> you can read into it what you want, but also we're going to tell you what we think. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we do get Solitaire's point of view on magic in this section. We actually get to see inside her head a little bit. The sort of origin story, which is very sort of black mammy stuff. Uh, yeah. about her being taken under sort of the, the guidance of her, her nurse. Um, it's, and, you know, again, very similar to, um, Honey Honey's, Rider, the sort of, yeah. the, the, the white woman in, in, uh, the Caribbean who, somehow sort of embodies Caribbean culture. Yes. <laughs> Survives on her own with the help of black women. In Florida, Bond reunites with Lighter and the pair visit a bait warehouse connected to Big, but they are sent away. They return to the motel and learn that Solitaire has been abducted. Good job, boys. <laughs> <laughs> they really did it. Uh, you know, she gave them every... A hint that this was a bad idea. Please don't go. I have a terrible feeling. My intuition has been correct 100% of the time that we've been together. (laughs) And yet still, and yet still, Bond's like, oh, there, there, babe, pat on the rump. I'll be back in five (laughs) minutes. So yeah, she gets hurried out of the motel in like a a case for a a music player or something. Uh, A large suitcase? Yeah, something like that. This section, I don't know, this section is kind of like, what are we talking about here? Why are we spending so much time in Florida? It's literally how I felt growing up. How, why, Dad, why are we spending so much time in Florida? <laughs> well, we should maybe skip to the next part because this is, this is a major in the life of James Bond. Yes. Bond wakes the next morning to discover that Lighter paid another visit to the warehouse in the night. Lighter is then deposited at the motel wrapped in bandages and severely mutilated, with a note saying he disagreed with something that ate him. Wow. I mean, this is, I think, the most gritty part of the novel, when Bond yeah. slowly reveals Lighter's face to, and sees a note sticking out of his barely breathing mouth, uh, to the bloody bandages, and, I mean, the best line in this novel by far is disagreed with something that ate him, right? There is another one that I, I will get to, but yes, it's, uh, <laughs> it's really memorable, and of course, it does show up eventually in the movies as well. Um, yeah, this is a big, like, turning point, because we, we see that horrible things happen to the people around James Bond. The fact yeah. that Lighter gets uh, so horribly mutilated. He survives, but he only survives by, actually, the <laughs> Fleming's American agent pleaded, please keep Felix Lighter alive. So oh, wow. I that didn't is know that. Why, that is why he is not killed in the book, But uh, and we will see Felix again, or I suppose I should say, Felix Lighter will return. Will return. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow, that's so interesting. Uh, Fleming really kind of takes this collaboration with his audience to the extreme. I mean, <laughs> he's, he's killed off Bond twice in the novels and brought him back twice. Uh, he... Uh, changed the weapon that Bond uses on a letter yep. from George Boothroyd. Uh, and here we have Felix being saved by his damned agent. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, he's, Fleming's a, a collaborative artist, I believe. Apparently. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we get some stuff here about how Bond hates American cars, which and not only because it seems to be the only time he thinks that American things are inferior, because really, like Bond and Fleming both have this sort of real love for American things, like the modern, the new, not all of the people in America, but a lot of the uh, <laughs> a lot of the culture. Yeah, I love the culture. I hate the people. 
except Texans. <laughs> they're they're the best for some reason. <laughs> that that's culture right there. <laughs> I said no one ever. Uh, sorry, Texans. Uh, Bond returns to the warehouse that night. He discovers that Big is smuggling the pirate treasure into the U.S. in the bottom of fish tanks containing poisonous fish. Bond is caught in a gunfight with Big's agent, which ends when Bond drops him into a pen containing the same shark that devoured Lighter. So this is an exciting scene. Oh, uh, this is where the novel really picks up. Am I right? These last few chapters, from yeah. ever for since we discover Lighter in the motel. Uh, through this to Jamaica, it's all really fast paced, and this is so cool. This is I is this recreated in License to Kill as well? The fight through uh, Ouroboros Inc. Oh, I don't know. I feel like it's not. It's not as memorable if it is, <laughs> like, right? Because this in on the page it reads as like the most intense chase through this like cavernous warehouse full yeah. of like glowing fish and tanks and eyes staring back at you from the dark uh, something that we will return to later in this novel as well yeah it's all so terrifying like you really feel on the edge of your seat for bond yeah it's like it's a really great set piece it's a really great location um there is that sort of that inky darkness the the monstrousness of the fish all around uh the stuff with the 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 poisonous uh scorpion fish Mm -hmm. you know that's the sort of cool you know in fleming loves cool animals the way that kids love cool animals (laughs) yes um yeah he'll always bring in like a scorpion or a centipede or a scorpion fish um and it's all the stuff that you know when you're 12 and you're reading through like the osborne book of deadly animals or something you're like oh my god i can't believe it's real yeah (laughs) so yeah he he stabs a scorpion fish to get to the gold coins that are buried in the sand at the bottom of the tank which is also like a really cool trick like it's a cool concept yeah, um, it, it's so funny. Um, we kind of didn't talk about it before, but when Lighter and Bond first visit uh, Ouroboros Inc., uh, the uh, guard, uh, the old man who's kind of guarding the warehouse, uh, just casually shoots a pelican, and both yes. Lighter and Bond look at him in disgust, like you awful. <laughs> awful man and then bond breaks into his warehouse and like gets his revenge by stabbing his fish in the head that's pretty strange (laughs) i thought you loved animals (laughs) he likes the animals that eat fish right yeah (laughs) not the fish themselves he he likes oh i see he relates he likes to eat fish and so he likes the animal okay got it um there's a great line it was a window into a queer world and into a queer business and i just have to say that is not true james <laughs> but that might end up being the tagline for this podcast oh oh, 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 oh my god we finally found it episode 11 <laughs> kiss kiss bang bang a window into a queer world and into a and queer into a business, queer business. <laughs> it's a bit long it's a bit wordy but i like it um so yeah this feel i mean this feels like the beginning of what becomes a great fascination with fish and the mm-hmm. underwater world in Bond novels and movies. And it just always works for me. I love <laughs> anything to do in the water and James Bond. Yeah. Uh, but even in Casino Royale, he was like describing the people in the casino in terms of what kind of fish they were. So it's like, oh. it's an obsession, really. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He wrote everything uh, at his GoldenEye estate in Jamaica. Right. And having just seen his estate in the Joanna Lumley dock that I was talking about at the top, um, you can see why. Like, the water is crystal clear. He probably went scuba diving himself and got to see all of this up close and must have also found it interesting and terrifying. He writes with such a clarity that the visuals really 
pop off the page. I mean, it helps. The sentences are like, you know, 10 words max, and there's never a semicolon in between. It's always <laughs> a very short thought, which really helps conjure an image. Um, yeah. But it's effective. It is. I mean, this is an action novel. It's supposed to move at a fast pace. And on the underwater world is slow, but he gives it a sense of immediacy, immediacy and urgency. I'm telling you, Miss Taro has the perfect life. You yeah, know? you're you're right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of Jamaica, uh, Bond <laughs> now flies to Jamaica, where he learns from local station chief Strangways or Strangeways. People <laughs> pronounce it both ways. Wait, uh, wait wh- stop. What people pronounce it both ways? I've heard an audiobook where they called him Strangeways, and it's like. No, it's Strangways. It's Strangways. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, he learns from local ch- station chief Strangways about how Big took over the island of Shark Bay and kept people away through the use of voodoo superstition while he dug up Bloody Morgan's treasure. So here we are, back at the most Scooby-Doo <laughs> sort of <laughs> section of the story, yep. using ghosts to scare people away while he digs up a pirate's treasure. Uh, he would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for that pesky <laughs> James Bond. Ah. <laughs> uh. I mean, first of all, it's Jamaica, not Haiti. How is voodoo superstition so strong here? Um, But I don't know. There's something about the drums coming from uh, the center of the island, which is actually like a terrifying idea of waking up in the middle of the night and just hearing drums coming from across the ocean. Um, There's something to it, but it's all, once again, it's all just covered and sticky with disgusting racism that it's hard to take it seriously and uh you know it could have just been so effective if they just focused on him stealing bloody morgan's treasure and stopped trying to tell (laughs) us about the culture of the people you know nothing about and the bloody drums i mean just all the way through this book there are drums drums (laughs) drums drums my god so can we both agree that strangways is an incidental hottie (laughs) he seems to be yeah he's described as sort of aquiline features and he's modest and he's good humored and of course he wears an eye patch oh so so hot (laughs) he's a total fox and he's 35 so i mean right right for the picking for some of us (laughs) 35 and he's ex-military so you know he's keeping it tight you know (laughs) this is not how he looks in in uh dr no no where he's about 65 (laughs) (laughs) very different we we've skipped right over it because it's sort of incidental to the plot but bond flying to jamaica so good one of my favorite parts of the book actually is the terrifying (laughs) flight ride (laughs) there is a whole monologue here about the fear of flying that is really great piece of writing Mm-hmm. Uh, it kind of contains the the ethos or the thesis, I guess, of the novel that we're all connected and our lives hang in the balance of other people's decisions and actions. So fuck it. Just go with it. <laughs> Do what you want. It's it's like, sure, this is kind of the idea of modern conservatism as well. Like, just <laughs> stay out there. Do it for yourself. Don't worry about the rest. But right. I, I mean, this is this is the height of the Cold War where... It's very real. Like, you have no idea. You don't know what spy is out there carrying what suitcase uh, or which bomb is going to be dropped when. Uh, And so you kind of just have to go with it and say, fuck it. (laughs) I'm actually listening to From Russia With Love at the moment. And that also has James Bond sort of monologuing about planes. Um, And so I think either James Bond was afraid of flying or Ian Fleming was afraid of flying or both. Yes, for sure. Uh, As someone who is afraid of flying, like this is exactly what I feel every time I'm in a plane. (laughs) He he nailed it. And of course, when he lands in Jamaica, he remarks on the dildo cactuses. 
Ew. What the hell is a dildo cactus? Ew. How have I never heard mention of a dildo cactus before? Because no, it sounds you. like a torture device, Andrew. No, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> we, we do not want any dildo cactuses. Thank you, no thank you. A local fisherman, Quarrel, is assigned as Bond's guide as Bond waits for Big to return to Shark Bay. Bond prepares by learning to scuba dive, studying the local aquatic life, and ordering diving gear and a limpet mine from headquarters. Uh, we get what sounds like the best meal, even though I don't understand what half of the ingredients are. <laughs> I've, I've uh, summarized all of the food uh, in this in this book, so we will get to that at the uh, at the end of the synopsis, I guess. Uh, oh. But yeah, there's there's so much eating in this book. I mean, it's yeah. This we've mentioned the word decadent. It's really decadent. Like he just eats and eats and eats and drinks and smokes and eats. Um, <laughs> I had forgotten that Strangways and Quarrel first appeared here, and the fact that they both get killed in the very first Bond film <laughs> is kind of a disservice to their characters who yeah. actually get some life. When they get killed in in that novel, you're supposed to have attachment to them. Like they are characters that we've come to know who have helped us in the past, and they and their brutal murder is kind of the impetus uh for all, everything that happens in that novel and the fact that they just get murdered right away in the film uh, without knowing who they are, really, uh, really undoes all of the good that comes out of this and where, you know, I I like Strangways. I like Quarrel. Well, it's why we have to get Quarrel Jr. In, uh, yeah. in the movie adaptation. I will say I was a little unfair to uh, Fleming and Bond when I said that he's probably never had Tostones because it seems like he does eat local when he travels because he does... Uh, seem to enjoy the uh, the Jamaican cooking in this book. So. Yeah, he really does. <laughs> but Credit where it's due. White tourism enjoys it. Like, no spice, <laughs> thank you. Could you make it without the salt? <laughs> this also kind of, for me, is where we really get to understand that Bond might be more into his male companions than his female <laughs> companion. His relationship with Quarrel, with Lighter, even a little bit with Strangways, they're just so much more meaningful than we get with yeah. Solitaire. Solitaire is merely just admired for her beauty, but Bond knows next to nothing about her, and yet he spends all of this time with Lighter and Quarrel, and he gets to know them intimately, and there's definitely this shared sense of connection between them, and, I mean, he gets daily massages from Quarrel. That's pretty <laughs> sexual in a novel where he doesn't really have any kind of sexual contact with women. Well, apart from that woman that kisses him like a man. <laughs> right. Well, yes, exactly. <laughs> Thanks for making my point. <laughs> Yes, Solitaire, even though we do get some of her interiority, which we don't get for Lighter or Quarrel, she still remains kind of a cipher, and mostly in terms of what she expresses outwardly. Mm -hmm. There's just not a lot to her. No, certainly not. Big arrives in Jamaica, and Bond swims through shark and barracuda-infested waters to plant the mine on Big's yacht. He is attacked by an octopus and caught in a feeding frenzy as Big's men chum the waters for protection. So, yeah, here we are seeing the fish as peril. <laughs> Shark and barracuda. You know, this is more of that, like, cool, evil animal stuff that that's so uh, titillating to the adolescent brain. <laughs> Which none of it is based in reality, I'm sure. Like, Barracuda are not known to go after people, um, and yet they are the most sinister villain in this novel, it would seem. <laughs> 
they hunt him like a pack of wolves i thought was particularly hilarious <laughs> there's a lot of stuff about like using shark repellent like we get so much stuff about shark repellent that then doesn't show up <laughs> yeah like they literally <laughs> spend an entire chapter where he prepares for this chapter uh and sorry we spend two chapters preparing for this outing and yeah. Literally, I mean, by the end of it, he may have well have just walked right into <laughs> the lair and given yes. himself up. If it weren't for the fact that he is successful in attaching that limpet mine, I mean, yeah. <laughs> just none of all of this was for naught. Um, but this is like, I think this is my favorite, uh, chapter. It's really dark and scary and terrifying and he really makes the the ocean feel alive the the octopus that attacks him is kind of shocking even though so you know so science fiction uh yeah. and but it's all symbolism for you know what bond is going through and how the there are these like tentacles coming from big and smirsh and russia and america and jamaica and there's just so many and they're so overwhelming and bond is just terrified and escapes by the skin of his teeth and doesn't even get a chance to rest because he's like bleeding and he's trying yeah. to get to to fresh air before his suit fills with water there's just so much happening and it's really visceral and he's not going to be done bleeding for a bit. In this. No. <laughs> My God, he must be close to death, the amount of blood left in the ocean. Right? <laughs> it, it is sad to think that we were denied the pleasure of watching Roger Moore wrestle an octopus in the <laughs> movie adaptation. But then again, when you look at the uh, the guy being attacked by an octopus in Octopussy, uh, maybe we dodged a bullet uh, because that looked like shit. <laughs> there's got to be a way we could do it now, right? Like, first of all, do octopus get big enough that they could bring down a human being i guess so yeah, sure I, probably maybe yeah probably? giant octopus is a thing they yeah. just don't come up so it's getting <laughs> a man and a giant octopus in the same place <laughs> <laughs> so bond seeks refuge in an underwater cave um where he hears the beating of drums oh there they are again oh, oh, uh, he investigates which is stupid and is captured <laughs> and uh, big receives him in his subterranean lair a very james bond moment uh, the uh, gracious host, the villain, and the exotic location, and the feigned cordiality. And the big speech, and uh, yes. I'm, I'm going to leave you two here alone for a while while I finish my plans and give you a chance to, like, come up with a plan yourselves. Uh, yeah, it's it, it does give us a, another soliloquy from Big where he talks about being a wolf among the sheep and an artist uh, so again there is something in here this idea of this this villain who is pursuing an idea of sort of black supremacy but it's rooted in the concept of black people being inferior like mm -hmm. it's rooted in the idea that it is remarkable for him to ascend and it is very clearly a white author rather than a black criminal genius who is saying these things. There's very, like, there's no ra racial motivation in this book. There's no racial motivation in big speeches no. or in his agenda. There is no conception that black people have suffered injustice or there is any righteousness in what he's pursuing. All of that is, like, not imagined by Fleming. Exactly. For all Fleming cares, it's just a black man stealing white man's gold. Um, yeah. and, and getting, and the black man is getting a lot of glee out of it. Um, but yeah, there, there's so much here that could have been done, uh, to give big a sense of, you know, fighting for something bigger himself. Um, yeah. maybe he is an agent of Russia, but, you know, maybe he's also trying to lift his people up at the same time. Maybe right. he believes that communism is the way for black people to, 
get get a foothold in society, which, I mean, spoiler alert, was a big part of the movement in the 50s and 60s yeah. itself. And it's not even mentioned here. Like, it's just kind of hinted at um, by saying that Big is uh, tied to Russia, but we don't delve into why that is at all. Black people were just too busy being distracted by voodoo and drumming. Oh, and drums, you know? yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, so Bond's reunited with the captive and beaten Solitaire, and Big decides to kill Bond and Solitaire by dragging them behind his yacht across the jagged coral reef and into the shark-infested waters. Bond protects Solitaire from the reef long enough for the mind to explode. It is a dark, twisted, and sexy energy of them <laughs> being tied naked to each other uh, and being pulled through the water, uh, and neither of them <laughs> being able to be aroused in any kind of way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's such a sort of strange choice of a sort of climax, I think. The fact mm-hmm. that the bomb is already there in place and these two people... I really can't do anything like they they survive because of timing basically yeah but there's a lot of tension and there's a lot of like real horror like being dragged across something that is going to make you bleed into an area where sharks are going to smell your blood like that's good that's good nasty stuff Oh, yeah. And I mean, if you've ever seen like what these coral reefs look like, uh, they have kind of a disgusting, outdated word they call them in the book. Um, but essentially, they're coral <laughs> coral heads that pop out of the water. Uh, if you were to be raked across one of those, like you'd r- literally be hitting a rock and bouncing off of it. So, yeah, you would be yeah. battered, bloody and bruised to the point of, I mean, if that doesn't kill them, the sharks will. This whole death trap is not included in the movie but it does show up in for your eyes only so it's the the second thing in this movie that later got adapted into or the second thing in this book that later got adapted into a different movie after lighter's uh fate it's so funny that the movie went out of its way to take out some of the best parts of the novel yes. right yeah. like that this this would have been an, an incredible climactic end to the movie instead of the one that we get i think yeah well, certainly the, the the way that uh, Big dies in the movie we have talked about is is uh, is a low moment in a low movie. <laughs> well, let's talk a bit about it in this book because Big <laughs> survives the explosion but ends up being killed by the sharks and barracudas. Bond and Solitaire are rescued by Quarrel. Um, so yeah, I mean the Kananga balloon is has been well discussed <laughs> in the past. Um, and here we get an actual terrifying death where yes. they where they literally stare death in the face. Uh, Big is swimming towards Bond, who has just managed to pull himself in solitaire to a rock outcropping. Uh, and ha- Bond has no energy left to do anything about it. He's just watching Big get closer and closer and then... All of a sudden, as people around him are being snatched underwater by the jaws of Barracuda and Shark, we see Big get eaten alive in front of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very effective scene. And and then, yeah, of course, it becomes the worst death in movie history Yeah, <laughs> in the adaptation. Like, so I mean, it would be hard to film this, I guess. It would be like, it would be hard to film this tastefully. Yeah. You know. Well, especially in the 70s, I guess. Yeah. It would have been very difficult. I feel like we could probably do it now, but maybe. Yeah. But I don't think we should ever remake this movie after having read this book. 
So yeah, the novel ends in one long edging session for Bond uh, <laughs> that culminates in Bond crying over the naked sleeping bo- or unconscious body of Solitaire for the first time since childhood. The only release that we've had <laughs> since this novel begins. <laughs> uh, and I must say, like the fact that Bond wins this whole thing by planting a bomb on page 236 that goes <laughs> off on page 271. What? <laughs> like that is that is anticlimactic. That is. Oh like, yeah. They capture Bond and they don't go looking for, oh, has he done anything? Has he sabotaged anything? Right. Why did he swim here when he could have just yeah. walked up here? Like, yeah. They should have found the bomb. It shouldn't have gone off, which means he should be dead. It's such a MacGuffin that feels like it was shoved in and like, as if Fleming said, oh, I don't know, let's just stick a bomb to the hull of the right. ship, which, you know, was a legitimate tactic in the war and is probably something that uh, he actually like it's probably a device he utilized in his time right. um but it, it yeah it has nothing to do with anything that's happened in this novel yeah the final confrontation between hero and villain happens with them both in separate places waiting for a thing that may or may not happen neither of them are actively doing anything mm-hmm. you know uh, so it's very strange like you just wouldn't do that i think in a certainly in a movie you no. wouldn't have that ending no, very strange way for the novel to end. Uh, although, like, still kind of effective, right? Like, there's something, like, the end is thrilling. It's just nonsensical, which I guess, uh, you could say that about a lot of these books and movies. Yeah, once Big is in the water, then it is brilliantly written and brilliantly harrowing. Mm-hmm. And, and there is that element of confrontation that's otherwise lacking. But yeah, the, the setup to get there is, I think, not effective. Even being raked over the coral, I feel like could have been a thing. I feel like they should have actually made a couple of passes over the over the coral, like uh, what happens in For Your Eyes Only. Right. Uh, and so we we see the pain, we feel the pain, and we know that like this is the end for them before it actually ends up working out in their favor. That might have given the stakes just a bit more flavor. Although I don't know how you survive even one pass over the coral. <laughs> no, same, same. I, I guess you're right. <laughs> but it's, I mean, it's still fantasy. <laughs> Yes, true. Uh, so there's just one chapter left in the book in which Bond takes compassionate leave with Solitaire in Jamaica. And I believe just... you mean passionate leave, sir. No, no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is how the final chapter is titled and how M dismisses Bond in his uh, telegram, tells him to take passionate leave. With, with Solitaire, but Bond demands that Quarrel join them. <laughs> Those massages were so good. (laughs) (laughs) They really did the trick. Well, and Bond does need to be, like, bathed and washed and fed because he's so badly injured, so... Very prone, and it's all... I mean, obviously, it's all so sexual. That's the allure of these novels, but it's so absurdly silly at the same time. Um, I do think it's interesting how much e- more easily Bond seems to actually fall in love with these women in these books so far than he does. Oh, yeah. Like, there's something, you know, glib and unemotional about Bond's relationship with women in the movies. But in the books, actually, he's like a sap for love. Like, he's just constantly smitten by these women. And yes, they tend to be very sort of passive, biddable um, characters that he's sort of in love with because they're in love with him. Uh, I- but he does fall for them. I think you're misunderstanding how Fleming uh, defines love. I think he means <laughs> that Bond gets a hard-on when he sees right. these women. And so to Bond, that means he must be in love because his <laughs> his willy works. Uh, <laughs> ah. well, not always. 
<laughs> well, no. <laughs> Particularly not when his pinky's broken. <laughs> the most sensual part of the body. Um, and the book ends with an anal joke. Uh, <laughs> they, they're going to a house on stilts with palm trees and five miles of golden sand. And you'll have to look after me very well because I shan't be able to make love with only one arm. There was open sensuality in Solitaire's eyes as she looked up at him. She smiled innocently. What about my back, she said. <laughs> and I mean, if that isn't an invitation, I don't know what is. I mean, I'm I'm struggling to understand what she's saying. <laughs> Me too, but I'm pretty sure it's a, it's a butt sex joke, right? <laughs> I'm going to say yes. We are the Queer James Bond podcast, and uh, uh, as an authority on all things uh, related to that, yes. <laughs> Good. Well, how to segue from that into everything Bond eats. Um... <laughs> Number one, ass. <laughs> You're lowering the tone. <laughs> so, yes, I have taken a full accounting of all of the meals. Well, almost all of the meals. He, like, a couple of times he doesn't get into specifics, but every time he says what he's eating. Um, so the first meal is a, is soft shell crabs with tartar sauce, flat beef hamburgers, medium rare, French fried potatoes, broccoli, mixed salad with thousand island dressing, ice cream with melted butterscotch, and Liebfraumilch. Oh my god. First of all, Liebfraumilch is like the oldest style of German wine you can find right? at the liquor store. It's like, oh, get a, like, get a red wine with all of that meat. <laughs> That's so 80s to have Liebfraumilch. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So also, this is a lot of food for one meal, no? <laughs> well, he's it's he's freshly landed in America. Mm. He's uh, experiencing the American way of eating, you know? I guess so. This is like the Denny's of uh, of meals, just more than you could possibly ever eat. There's a salad in there. It's covered in a creamy dressing, but it's a salad. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah uh, he gets a half pint of orange juice, three eggs lightly scrambled, bacon, espresso, toast, and marmalade for breakfast, which, you know, seems that seems at least pretty healthy and regular. That also seems like the classic Bond breakfast. Like, I feel like he's had that breakfast many times over. Oh, I'm pretty sure we've read that line many times yeah. before. <laughs> uh, little neck clams and fried chicken Maryland with bacon and sweet corn, which is maybe the most American sounding uh, <laughs> meal he has in a restaurant in, in Harlem, I think. Neck clams, <laughs> sweet corn, ma sweet Mary's fried chicken. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Uh, he also gets chicken sandwiches, he gets pineapple juice, cornflakes and cream, shirred eggs and bacon, espresso toast and marmalade again. Uh, yep. Shirred eggs I had to look up, and I'm still not sure if I remember what they are. <laughs> it's, it's basically a baked egg. Weird. That's, that's yeah. English. <laughs> uh, yes, it is. Um, but the fact that he varies his juices, you know, orange juice one day, pineapple juice the next, that's, uh, that's very cosmopolitan. And Sanka on the train. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Sanka, the decaffeinated coffee with his chicken sandwiches and old fashioned on the train. <laughs> Sanka uh, and old fashioned. Mmm, yum. Yeah, it doesn't sound great. A lot of chicken sandwiches, though. He's really enjoying the chicken sandwiches, which I understand. You go to America, you have chicken sandwiches. You it's know? true. <laughs> uh, also, a lot of eggs, more scrambled eggs, bacon, sausage, salad, and an American camembert gets a shout out. Yeah, he seems to highly rate the American camembert. I'm going to disagree with you on that one, James, but uh, <laughs> sure. Then for breakfast the next day, scrambled eggs again, coffee and orange juice. Oh my god. And then following that, tomato juice, boiled fish, turkey and cranberry, lemon curd with fake cream. That sounds really disgusting altogether. Yeah, this is, I think, the meal that he does not enjoy in, the, uh, in a diner. No kidding. Where he thinks everything seems terrible. Um, <laughs> steak, french fries, coffee and bourbon. 
Uh, that's just, you know, everyday classic. I'll have the regular. Oh, and then we get to the really good stuff. Papaya <laughs> with lime, red bananas, purple star apples, which I'm not sure what those are, but they no. sound delicious. Tangerines, scrambled egg and bacon, blue mountain coffee, Jamaican marmalade, and guava jelly. Oh, all sounds so good. But it's basically the same breakfast he's had every other day while he's been here. <laughs> yeah, he's got the scrambled egg and bacon and the coffee and the <laughs> marmalade. It's just Jamaican marmalade, which is black for some reason. Uh, for some reason. I'll go for it. Uh, yeah, purple star apples. I wonder if that's carambolas, which I don't think of as purple, but should I look it up? Star shaped. Sure, I, 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 I need to know what this looks like so I can <laughs> find one and eat it. Yeah, it does sound delicious. And then he gets black crab, suckling pig, avocado salad, guava with coconut cream, and again, blue mountain coffee for his final repast and uh my goodness like that all sounds superb blue mountain coffee he claims as the the most delicious coffee in the world which i think is a reputation it still enjoys to this it's day. true it's true i'm just looking at um the the purple star apple uh and it looks like a plum uh it has it's purplish white uh on the inside and it really does have a star shape in the Ooh. center it looks delicious and if yeah, i ever beautiful. find one i am eating it <laughs> in the name of james bond we have to uh, do the research absolutely well we'll go to jamaica that's clearly the the thing we have to do now andrew it's a pandemic <laughs> stay home yes okay fine <laughs> purple star apples can wait should we get to our highlights yes why not all right, well, I guess my highlight of this novel would be the infiltration of and fight at Ouroboros, Inc. I think mm -hmm. that entire scene is just so exciting, and it's the first time where race isn't really playing a factor in any of the proceedings. It is just pure, simple, fun revenge. Um, and I'm also going to give a shout out to Bond Underwater. It's still one of the most fascinating things. I think it's just described deliciously in this. It's so scary. <laughs> it's so terrifying. And it feels alive. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, the aquarium fight or the warehouse fight is definitely a highlight for me as well. It's just a really well-written and engaging and original concept for a fight scene. Uh, feels very, like, kinetic and cinematic um but also i just want to shout out the sort of the the romantic view of america and of new york especially um which is still like something that i said i, I grew up with that i think a lot mm. of people conceive of america that way and i think he captures it beautifully i'm going to read a short passage which is from the, the first quarter of the book so the worst part of the book but it <laughs> is beautiful writing to his left the sun was setting in a blaze of color in the skyscrapers the lights were coming on turning the whole town into a golden honeycomb Far below the streets were rivers of neon lighting, crimson, blue, green. The wind sighed sadly outside in the velvet dusk, lending his room still more warmth and security and luxury. That is the fantasy of America, absolutely captured perfectly. It's like Gershwin-esque. Yeah, it's really beautiful. And that's funny that you mentioned that because his description of new of America changes throughout the novel mm -hmm. like it really starts off in this glowing romantic way and by the time he leaves he's like they want me out of here i want out of here and the way he writes about america is like it's gray it's moss covered it looks right. like it's dying and i just need to get out um <laughs> but it's it's really effective writing because it does go from this really romantic setting to this horrible dead thing it goes from new york to florida <laughs> 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 exactly. I mean, that's the American journey. Um, so, 
I mean, I think we're both agreed on what the low light is yes. in this novel. It is the racism, but particularly chapter five, right? Yes, absolutely, no question. Yeah, uh, we don't need to talk too much about it. the The title it's the the title of the chapter is horrible. The contents therein horrible, uh, and you could take it out, and it wouldn't make a dent in the novel. The glamour moment. Let's move on to nicer things. Uh, yes. What do you think stands out as in the worlds of fashion, food, sex, drugs? Rock and roll. I mean, the fashion is pretty great. I must say, I really did enjoy some of the uh, the stuff that is talked about. Particularly, Big's outfits sound pretty awesome, um, like the fawn coat and the silk tie. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, it's got to be the abundance of food, and particularly oh, all of the stuff in Jamaica just sounds just so delicious. Uh, <laughs> it is. It's the it's one of the better parts of this novel is the food tourism. Yeah, the food is great. Uh, like I thought, the first meal he has with the soft shell crab. I love soft shell crabs so much; they <laughs> mm-hmm. are delicious. And so I was like, "Well, that's the food highlight of the whole book." But then he gets to eat crab again at the end of the book, and it's like, "Well, okay, if I have to choose one meal, it's going to be the crab that's served with the suckling pig, I guess." Like, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it comes with a salad <laughs> and coconut cream and more coffee. I mean, yeah, there's no doubt in my mind. I would definitely eat. Well, I'd have it all. I'd eat it all, except for the Florida meals. <laughs> right. Yes, we don't want that. Uh, what was the queerest moment in this novel? For me, I, I would have to see, say it was the relationship that Bond shares with Lighter, more so than with Solitaire. <laughs> yeah, I, this is another one where there's there's not a crack of daylight between us. It's James and Felix in love. Um, <laughs> They're in love. Oh. They are. It is just a, an intimate bromance that is maybe a little more than bromantic. <laughs> and, you know, there's a really nice rhythm to their relationship. There's some enjoyable, like, chemistry to the way they're written that is especially, of course, amped up just before Felix is devoured by a shark because um, that's how you wrench on the heartstrings but yeah there's there's also like a lot of suggestiveness yeah there's so like every time they see each other there's a lot of relief in both of their faces and they're so excited when they talk to each other and their eyes light up and they have so much to say when they're with each other and they're so silent when they're not with each other and bond can only think of lighter when when after lighter is injured and he's away from lighter all he can do is constantly be like but what's up with felix is felix okay like even when they're in bow desert and bond uh gets update on felix's condition like the hard ass cold just brutally ruthlessly murdered some guy by throwing him into the same shark pit he's like well just let lighter know that i'm thinking about him okay <laughs> yeah solitaire gets his willy hard but felix gets his heart beating <laughs> i thought you were gonna say hard hard <laughs> <laughs> no that's a that's an illness that he should say <laughs> And and on that note, I'm going to go straight into my sexiest moment, which is, uh, it's it, sadly, it's the moment that Felix is being devoured by a shark, but it's, uh, James wakes up and takes a shower and walks into Felix's room wearing just a towel. What did he think was going to happen? I mean, I know what I want to have happened. You know, he, we already know that Felix sleeps naked. So James is walking into a room where he thinks Felix is naked and he's wearing just a towel. <laughs> dot 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 (laughs) (laughs) oh i'm connecting them right now uh that is great Uh, that that so overrides mine that i almost don't want to say it like (laughs) and i i kind of just picked one because i was like what is sexy about this novel i'd forgotten about that i said bond and solitaire tied together naked to the paravane which i mean is pretty sexy uh and i definitely it's titillating but yeah no james walking into felix's room in just a towel you win my friend that is the sexiest (laughs) moment 
Okay, I'm going to read to you my favorite line, and it comes at the, the very end of the second last chapter of the novel. The first tear since his childhood came into James Bond's blue-gray eyes and ran down his drawn cheeks into the blood-stained sea. I really just love that release, that moment, and <laughs> it feels like the culmination not just of this novel, but of Casino Royale as well. We, Bond never really mourns uh, Vesper in that novel. I think he's. I think we get a moment where like a tear runs down his cheek, but this sounds like James Bond sobs into the ocean, uh, and yeah, it's really lovely. And I'm also just going to shout out the entire monologue when Bond thinks the plane is going down. And the very tail end of that is, you're still alive, aren't you? There, we're out of it already. It was just to remind you that being quick with a gun doesn't mean you're really tough. Don't forget it. And that, I think, is really powerful and says a lot about James Bond's character that he, you know, he portrays this really tough thug, but actually he is just terrified the entire time. Yeah, there are moments where we see vulnerability and, and that masculinity isn't all it's cracked up to be, which, you know, there's Fleming revealing his hand a little bit. It's, yeah. uh, it's a nice moment. I'm gonna go in a different direction for, for this line. Um, I mean, we've, we've talked about the, the note left with Felix's body that says he disagreed with something that ate him. Also, oh yeah, so good. Was my, was my number three, could have been my number one. <laughs> but there is a postscript on that note, which is, in all caps, we have plenty more jokes as good as this, which just makes me howl with laughter because it's it just works on multiple levels. First of all, it's it's not a good joke. Like, no, <laughs> it's a really cruel, awful thing that they've done. Um, so the implication here that this is a good joke when it's actually just savage is is kind of hilarious. Um, but also it's a brilliant threat. Like, it's a really clever way to say, you know, get out of town. Um, we did this to your friend guess what? We have other jokes as good as this one. Like, that's, that's and there, good. And there's a nice great writing. third level of, like, uh, you know, in all caps telling you, this is funny! You should laugh! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is the most American reading of it. <laughs> exactly. Like, applaud for me! <laughs> um, I, also, in, in the discussion of best lines, I just want to reference that the curse that is left on the train mm. is a very evocative piece of writing and I'm really curious where Fleming got it from. Like, did he invent it wholesale or is it a reference to something? So I'll read a little bit of that. Oh, witch, do not slay me. Spare me. His is the body. The divine drummer declares that when he rises with the dawn, he will sound his drums for you in the morning. Like, it's creepy. It's good, creepy writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, remove it from all of the terrible uh, ideas of blackness and voodooism that that it's freighted with. And, and it's a nice bit of, like cursed writing yeah absolutely I, I just don't know where it comes from yeah i really hope that he sourced it from something but i mean it wouldn't surprise me if it just came out right. of the, out of thin air you know a lot of things did in this novel uh yes. so what was the most timeless or relevant moment for you well uh i would say the the scene with the police in in new york early on in the novel um because the fact that they just straight up say that they wish that they could just beat up mr big but people would riot in the streets if they did that like the basically they're saying well if we could get away with it we would use extrajudicial means to 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 hurt this guy um and the people wouldn't stand for it as if the outrageous part of that <laughs> is that people would riot not that <laughs> they would take extrajudicial action and that is so reflective of america today like that is still relevant and then in the same same uh sort of 
tone. James talking about Mr. Big at one point uh, to, to Leiter says, and this is the quote, he certainly seems to have the run of this country, just shows how one can push a democracy around with habeas corpus and human rights and all the rest. The rights are the problem in this scenario. What? Like, <laughs> honestly, I, I had to put the book down for a second. I was like, what am I reading? James Bond does not believe in democracy? What is he fighting what? for then? Yeah, you're pushing a democracy around because you... you have rights like that's such an absurd like it's not the wealth and the privilege it's the fact that habeas corpus exists that's the problem in america today like oh dear god <laughs> i mean honestly we could just cut this book out of the canon and i would appreciate <laughs> james bond so much more <laughs> what about you what's your most timeless or relevant moment uh, i mean it's kind of about it's basically the same and that this is not ancient history my yeah. dad is older than this book my mom is slightly older than this book and these attitudes towards black people back then were the norms. So, yeah, the most timeless moment in this novel, and I think it's pretty similar to what I said the most timeless moment in the uh, movie was, <laughs> is the legacy of slavery, colonialism, and anti-black racism, and how it has a long shadow extending through history up until now and going much further from now. Uh, yeah. It, yeah, things still aren't great. Uh, they may be, you know, better than being able to use the N-word in the title of your chapters. Uh, but, you know, black people still face an uphill battle here in America, around the world. People of yeah. color, women in particular, trans women especially. Uh, so, yeah, it's a very dark and not so ancient history. That is the most timeless part of this novel for me. Absolutely. Um, so tying into all of that, the cringiest moments, I think, <laughs> are not going to be surprising. Um, for me, it was all of the Harlem dialogue, all of that weird oh, dialectic. God. Like, I mean, I, as I said, I literally didn't read it. I, no. I couldn't read it. I didn't read it. I forced myself to read the pigeon patois. Um, and yeah, I agree. That's really, really horrible stuff. And almost as horrible would be, uh, you know, the heroine of this novel, Solitaire, and her not-so-subtle racism yeah. on the train to St. Petersburg. Um, and you read the the line earlier about she yeah. knew that her verdict might often be a death sentence, but she felt indifference to the fate of those she judged to be evil. Very few of them were white. Uh, and that says everything you need to know about these characters. Oh boy, I mean, we usually touch on and unpack other problematic elements of, of the <laughs> well, work. At what this else stage. did we talk about? <laughs> I feel like we've we've covered it pretty well at yeah. this point. So uh shall we rate this? I think it's time. <laughs> So for the ratings, we use a tweaked version of our movie scoring system uh, for the books. So once again, we give a base score between one and three points. Then we award bonus points from four categories. For the novels, those categories are Bondian competence, how good he is at his job, uh, accidental progressiveness, because <laughs> it's never intentional, and of course, glamour and queerness. Well, uh, I don't know where to start. <laughs> I mean, I guess I would give this a I don't know. Okay, for a Bond novel, it hit, hit hits all the beats. Like, it is the formula. Uh, mm -hmm. And you can see that this is the formula that carried on from the last one and is probably going to be the formula going forward because it's so cookie cutter. Uh, but I don't think that formula adds necessarily anything to the canon this time around. Uh, and with all of the horrible things that happen in this novel, I cannot in good conscience give it more than a one. Yeah, I, uh, this is, it's the, it's the movie all over again, but I think 
you know, to sound like Britta Perry, if you excuse the racism. <laughs> you can excuse the racism? <laughs> like, I think it's a good book. Like, that's the problem here. Like, yeah. it's a very well-written, yeah. well-constructed and enjoyable book if you get past the sections which are really not enjoyable, that are actually unreadably awful, both, you know, morally repugnant and just hard to read. Mm-hmm. Um I'm going to give it a two because I think it is a strong enough book to stand up for it, but it is losing that that third point because of the grotesque racism. Uh, <laughs> I think that's fair, and I, I do not blame you for giving it that extra <laughs> point because that is where uh, it lies for me too. Like it yeah. is uh, the problem is with all of these. They, like you said, they are well written. He does have a great sense of language. He was a yeah. he was a journalist. He was a reporter, so he's really great at making you feel things that are happening now. The sense of immediacy is there throughout this entire novel. But yeah, I just. I can't overlook the racism, Andrew. (laughs) I know you can, but I can't. (laughs) It is a better book than the movie is a movie. Agreed. 100% agreed. The scores are basically reflecting that fact. Yeah. Uh, How about the Bond competency point? Did Bond... Was Bond Bond in this? And was he good at being Bond at this? Was he successful in all of the things he was trying to do? You know, it's almost a coin flip, this (laughs) one. Uh, I've decided to give him the point. I think... He felt very Bondy and he got to do a lot of Bondy things. Um, and he didn't like, you know, taking Solitaire on the train was a blunder, but he and then letting Solitaire get captured, another blunder, uh, getting captured at the end, a huge <laughs> blunder. Like, yeah, he blunders a lot. Um, but he does some good spy craft. I think he gets the point by the skin of his teeth. I, I'm going to take that point away from myself, I'm going to be <laughs> honest. Uh, he spends the entire novel catching up to the villain's plans. He is never <laughs> on the ball. Uh, he gets. You forgot to mention that he also gets captured in Harlem uh, <laughs> twice. Uh, he, yeah, he really struggles in this one for me. Uh, even when he succeeds, he nearly fails. Uh, so no, I cannot say that Bond is competent. Also, the only time he is competent in w- is when he's going out for personal revenge, which is not part of what he was assigned to do. <laughs> he does get that limpet mind stuck, though. Yes, he. I, I, okay, he, yeah, he gets he gets a little note in the asterisk of his life that he got that mind attached. Good for him. Uh, you know, at least in this novel, he is actively an agent in the destroying of the villain, which he is not in Casino Royale. This so. is true. This is true. <laughs> Accidental progressiveness. Uh... Mm, I we can't right there's not a moment in here like he literally (laughs) fights against democracy he belittles black people and is racist throughout the entire novel there's no progressiveness in this he does not get that point no No. glamour now that is one that we could legitimately discuss i think yeah i mean from my point of view you know the food of have you said the food is like this lavish lifestyle thing um the the sort of the romance of, of New York especially mm-hmm. feels very glamorous, uh, but not necessarily glamorous to a large section of the audience. Like it, it, it also arguably is very familiar, especially reading it now. Yes. We don't go to a lot of exotic locales. We go to Florida for God's sakes. <laughs> um, uh, you know, Jamaica is there and Jamaica is, is gorgeous, but even then I don't feel like I experienced Jamaica as fully in this book as I would like to. So, and, there are no female characters aside from Solitaire. Um, there's no casino. 
uh, there's no like high life in this book. So I chose not to give it the glamour point. But again, it was a coin toss. If I was going to give it a glamour point, it would be for Jamaica because <laughs> uh, Jamaica sounds perfect and beautiful. White sandy beaches. But he comes back to Jamaica a bunch and we are yeah. going to get so much more Jamaica and we're going to get a lot more of actual Jamaican culture, not any of yes. this voodoo bullshit that they're trying to force. <laughs> And the food itself, I mean, while decadent, is not enough to give it the glamour point for me either. No, no. Even though those soft shell crabs are delicious. Now we get to the only point where I think I can actually <laughs> give it the point. The queerness factor. I mean, this is a surprisingly queer film. Not only does it use the word queer multiple times. I called it a film. I mean, novel. Uh, not <laughs> only does it use the word queer multiple times, but I mean, as we discussed in length, James has much better uh, intimate relations with Felix Leiter and Quarrel uh, than he does with the, the damsel in distress, Solitaire. I, I think this is a pretty queer novel, even though it's one of the worst ones. <laughs> no, I agree with you. I think the relationship with Felix alone would get it the queer point from me. So that's a two for me. <laughs> and a four from me. So uh, it scores a three overall. Which is pretty low for us. I mean, three yeah. and a half, I think, is about as low as we've gone so far. So this has been the worst outing so far. <laughs> <laughs> Understandably so, you might say. Oh, I think I think very understandable, yes. I'm still actually kind of surprised that it rates that highly. I thought for sure two would be the max, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I've been too generous to Bond in this instance. Oh, no, you're right. Like, this is a well-written novel, and there, if I really hated everything about this, I would never watch another Bond movie, never read another Bond novel. I would not be fascinated about this. But there is some really cool elements of spycraft. The character is strong, still very true to what we imagine him to be in this novel as he appears in others. So, yeah, it's a, a really interesting flop. Next time on Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, we are taking a look at a classic Ian Fleming movie adaptation featuring an iconic villain, a beautiful woman with a suggestive name, and a sweet tricked out ride. Oh yeah, baby. If you want to know which movie we're talking about, well, you'll just have to join us in two weeks' time. That's April 1st. Put it in your calendar, the 1st of April, for our next episode of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. You can follow Kiss Kiss Bang Bang on Twitter and Instagram at KKBBPod, or send us nice messages at KissKissBangBangPod at gmail.com. You can also follow our individual Twitter accounts at Wheeler and at Shane Came Back. Please share, like, rate, and review Kiss Kiss Bang Bang on your preferred podcasting and social media platforms. Our graphics are provided by the incredibly talented Carl Shura. You can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Carl Shura. That's C-A-R-L-S-H-U-R-A. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is recorded in Toronto, on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. We acknowledge that we are settlers on unceded territory. You know, as always, we like to end every single episode with a great piece of Bond-related music. Andrew, can you tell me what we're signing off with this week? Well, in Live and Let Die, we learn that Felix Leiter is something of a Dixieland jazz aficionado, a fact that maybe saves his life when he bonds with one of Mr. Big's men. As this is the Bond story most invested in black American culture, even though it 
doesn't say very many nice things about it. And as jazz <laughs> is a black American art form, I thought we might add a jazz standard to our Bond playlist. Well, Felix, we noted, says that piano men and drums men make the best band leaders, and one of the band leaders that he name-checks is the great Creole jazz pioneer Jelly Roll Morton. So here is one of his pieces, which is believed to be the first jazz arrangement ever published. This is the Jelly Roll Blues. This is like proto jazz, like you've never heard before. Dare I say, it feels almost straight out of a minstrel show. It is so <laughs> Dixieland, poppy. But there's so much like piano going on, uh, like improvised piano going on in different segments of the piece. Uh, it's a really interesting song, and it's so cool to think that this is the progenitor of one of my favorite musical art forms. Yeah, it's not the stuff that I think that you or I would listen to when we're listening to jazz, but apparently it's what Felix prefers. <laughs> I mean, talk about old-fashioned, huh? <laughs> oh, that's good. We brought it full circle. <laughs> All right, thanks for listening, and until next time... (laughs) Kiss, kiss. Bang, bang.